We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Right? I'll say, we really should. Uh, want a beer? You gonna call room service? We got beer. You hold beer up this rock, you're insane. I may be insane, but I'm not stupid. I didn't carry it. You did. It's in your pack. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Hello and welcome to the Normal Cast. I'm Chris Caloose, your host. It is April 14th, about 8.30 Mountain Standard Time. On episode 9, that's right, almost double digits, people, I sit down with my friend and colleague Sam Leitner. Sam Leitner is probably most known for being a major developer and advocate for climbing in Thailand, uh, but he's also been a developer in his home state of Wyoming and Utah and uh, quite an explorer all over the world. But mostly what we decided to talk about was climbing advocacy. Sam's had a semi-career in climbing advocacy. He's worked for the Access Fund at times, and he's fought for your rights to climb in a bunch of different areas in the United States. But before we get to that, I'd like to talk to you all about this little project called the Enormal Cast. Um, after about four and a half months, I'm super happy with the building psych about the podcast. Um, I've done very little publicity, just on Facebook, word of mouth, you know, spreading it to a few other websites, and things are building. Um, I've already topped 10,000 total downloads, which I think is pretty good, although I don't know. I'm sure This American Life does that in like 10 seconds. But nevertheless, I'm pretty happy with that, and I'm really psyched that you guys have been spreading the word. How can you all help out? Um, I try to hit all this every different show, but I always forget something. So let me go through the list. First of all, like I said, tell your friends. Second of all, please go to Facebook and like the Enormal Cast. Third thing. Make sure you're subscribed. If you're pulling this off the website, it actually helps me to have people subscribed on iTunes. While you're there, go ahead and leave a review, but make sure it's a good review. No bad reviews. Actually, whatever. If you don't like it, put a bad review. It'll actually maybe make it seem more authentic. Please also visit the website. Leave some comments. Enormocast.com. I'm not overwhelmed over there, and I'm always able to respond to them. Also, you can email me at chris at normalcast.com. Send me ideas, ask me questions. You just want to chat. That sounds good too. I'm easily able to respond to all those as well. So I've had some great conversations over there and I really appreciate it. And finally, if you would consider donating a little hard cash, that would be awesome too. A lot of you folks that have come over from Off Belay donated over there and we really appreciated it. I took what was left of that money after all the hookers and blow and moved it over to the normal cast to help me set up a little bit better equipment, get my domain, get my host set up. And those of you who listen to the off blade podcast probably realize that this audio is actually much better by now. That's partially a little bit of equipment, but it's mostly that I finally have figured some shit out as I've been teaching myself as this goes. But at 10,000 downloads, if I'd have gotten or could get a dime per download, just 10 cents, I'd have a grand. Is that right? The math? Let me think. Carry the one. Yeah, I think it's a thousand bucks. What would I do with that thousand bucks? Well, I'd buy some stickers. I don't even have stickers yet. Climbers love stickers. What am I going to do without stickers? Maybe I'll get some t-shirts. Maybe I could actually pay someone to do some graphic design and get a logo. I don't even have a logo. How am I supposed to get PBR to sponsor me if I don't even have a logo yet? Anyway, that's what I would be doing with a little bit of money. So please consider throwing down a little cash. You know, if I ran into you at the cliff or at some little town out there in the climbing world and you found out I was the host of the normal cast, wouldn't you, out of appreciation, buy me a beer? Maybe get me a coffee? Maybe just throw down for a block of chalk or roll a tape? That's all I'm asking. Just a couple of bucks here and there will add up and I will be able to expand this and start doing some other interesting things. Just head over to the website, normacast.com. There's a donate button on the homepage or click on the tab that says help out. When you donate, you'll get an extra special message from me and my idol, Joe Esposito. 
Sweep the leg, Johnny. Sweep the leg. And thanks to a couple people who have already donated. You complete me. But in the meantime, if you're really poor and you can't even spare a couple bucks, that's cool. I'm down with that. I'm not going to beg. Just, again, go back. Make sure other people are listening. Let me build my numbers up because I'm desperate to sell out, baby. I am desperate. Okay. Let me dust my knees off. Stand up here. We'll get to the interview with Sam Leitner. Sam Leitner, who's fighting for your rights. Not just to party, but to rock on. The tyranny of these computers that do all this automatic shit on you. Okay, so, uh, hey, how's it going, Sam? Having a great day. Awesome. Yeah, we're um, hanging out at Sam's place. We just got back from uh, climbing today. And uh, I asked Sam to join me on the Normacast to talk a little bit about climbing advocacy because he's been someone who's spent much of his climbing career being um, an advocate in a bunch of different ways for a bunch of different climbing areas. And so we're going to talk about that and a bunch of other things. Sam, we went climbing today. Yeah, and you got to see my uh, my little connection device thing, daisy chain. Thing yeah, that you, that's right. We were going to talk about your daisy chain. That you love so much. I like <laughs> people who have those things. It's a sign that they know how to belay and that they're really competent. <laughs> Ever since I busted on daisy chains on the uh, old, old podcast... Um, I continue. In fact, I just got an email from a guy who, uh, gone to a guides course and learned a whole bunch of things. And he assured me that he wasn't going to be that guy as he put it, uh, with his daisy chain. No, he'll eventually, like, he'll eventually go, you know, I got hung up on this, this web, this, this podcast years ago. And I just thought <laughs> it would be such a geeky thing to have it. And I fought it and I fought it. I fought it. But you know what? It's just, it's, it's made my life so much easier. I'm All just right. going to keep, yeah, All okay, right. fine. So tell me about your, tell me about your daisy chain because it's, it's super special. It's super special. I sit and watch a basketball game. Okay. Run a piece of bungee through some 916 inch webbing. Mm-hmm. And it makes a second belay loop, which for reasons we probably won't go into, I, I like backing up my belay loop. Okay. And then So in uh, other words, it's tied through, through your your tie-in points like yes. like the belay loop. Okay, and good. And it's the same length as my as my belay loop. Uh-huh. And then I have a locking beaner on the other end. No one can walk up and say or climb up and go, "Hey, uh I might need that sling on this pitch. Give right. it to me." Okay. And you you always have it. Right. No one can take it away. So it's a piece of bungee cord inside of the <laughs> Yeah, so it sucks webbing. right up against your hip. It's so out of your it, way. So it extends and then retracts when you let yes. go of it. Yes. And But it's still runner strength because the bungee isn't actually holding you. The bungee you. isn't holding you. It the, just keeps it out of your way. The webbing is holding you. Yes. And then I saw you had a little knot in it because it's not actually a daisy. It's more of a leash. Well, I have two different kinds. Okay. Yes, I've developed two different kinds. That was my light version. Okay. <laughs> this and, isn't nerdy yes. at all. <laughs> yeah. No, no. And, 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 and uh, that was the light version, which is one long section of webbing to a knot on the end uh-huh. with one knot in the middle. Okay. Now, the heavy-duty version is loops of webbing, all with bungee in them. Okay. No, you can't even picture it. It's, it's so, so it's ingenious. An, it's like a, it's like a, a, a tied daisy. Yeah. With lots of different loops in it and knots, but then it's Three got bungee in it. That sucks it up. So it's still, it's still retractable. Yes. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a fashion. You're going to see them on runway models. The more soon. important question is, do you run it between your legs when you're not using it? No, I okay. did take that to heart from your previous uh, podcast about how horrible those things well, are. So. You know, and, and frankly, in someone who... who you know, I'm I'm someone who I believe in practicality and I believe in things being working and there's really actually I I honestly can't think of a reason not to put it through your legs. I mean, in terms of like how it works and, and truly the people who do that, it's because it gets it out of their way and they don't accidentally clip it when there's it's running. There's a chafing around issue there. though. You know, there's possibly a chafing issue, but I mean it's just it's just one of those things where it just looks so dumb that uh, you just can't, you just got to stop doing it. So anyway, what happened was, is I didn't have anything to clip in today and we were actually working on Sam's project, which I can't, he, he's made me swear that I, 
I won't say where it is. It's in Utah. It's in Utah. And we were on a multi-pitch climb, but we were top roping one of the pitches. So we'd have to switch ends and all this sort of stuff. And I had everything to clip in with. And I had been making fun of his daisy chain. But then, of course, he he kept showing me how awesome and convenient it was and how I couldn't because I had to clip in with quick draws and all this. And other the quick draws garbage. were on the root, so you yeah. couldn't find any quick draws. Right, so it's right. like, okay, so. we have to take apart the belay so that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He no one takes me. it away from you. And okay. He also had a brand new one. <laughs> I think there's some people out there are going to want to make one of these things. Oh. I'm surprised Yates doesn't sell them. <laughs> Yeah, so some company that's really not trying to make a lot of profit can make what uh, what I do while I'm watching a basketball game or anyone else does. You need a true. coat hanger and a piece of webbing. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, like I said, I kind of want to talk to you about climbing advocacy. Sam is the president of the Friends of Indian Creek. That's your title, right? Uh, yeah, Pokefoik. Okay. I'm also on the Friends of Indian Creek, uh, which is an advocacy group to... Um, kind of deal with issues with the land managers down in Indian Creek. and uh, um, The greater Moab area. The greater Moab area. That's right. We expanded our scope once you joined because you actually started, what is it, Moab Area Climbers Association? Moab Area Climbers Alliance. Yeah, it could have been associated, depending on my mood, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was in, I think, 2006. That was right after a certain event that took place here. <laughs> Got a lot of. There's no. There's, we don't mad. have to beat around the bush. Um, the event was that Dean Potter was climbing on Delicate Arch. Yeah. And posted a video of it, and got uh, basically the superintendent of arches came down on him pretty hard. The thing that really that really upset the Park Service uh, was that he didn't back down after. You know, he didn't say, "Oh, I made a mistake, and you know, I shouldn't have done that." He right. said, "No, we don't have any rights," and you know, so then it sort of became this. Park service versus the people, and they had to validate everything that they had said. You shouldn't be climbing this. You know, right. they had to give reasons for it. And on a local level, the the superintendent of this park got called by the superintendent of park of the National Park Service mm-hmm. and yelled at for this right. event taking place because, as I understand it, the superintendent of the National Parks got yelled at by Orrin Hatch, the head of the judiciary. So it got to be this really big thing when it was mm-hmm. really a guy climbing a rock, right. and, but it was an iconic rock. And, right. uh, and because he didn't back down, then they couldn't back down. Somebody's going to lose face here. So it just became this big mm-hmm. war. Well, it was even on NPR. Yeah. From, I mean, it yeah. went everywhere. It was, it, was, it was a mess. And as I understood it, I thought that even the undersecretary of the interior was aware of the goings Something on. Something like that. It yeah. was it was a big deal that people high up in the government mm-hmm. were complaining that this had taken place and literally complaining to these local park service right. attendants that are like, I really never planned on getting yelled at at this park that sees one million visitors a year. Right. Super, yeah. super out of the way. So you uh, became... You decided you like to climb in arches for some ungodly reason. I like sand in my eyes. And you decided that you would become something of uh, a local voice. Um, yeah, no. As the, a result of that, Friends of Indian Creek existed at that time, but it dealt only with Indian Creek. And in Moab, we have, I mean, how many climbing areas? It's, you know, there's climbing all over the place around right. here. Arches is just one of the spots. And I just, I had just moved here permanently and said, Wow, somebody's got to stand up and say, you know, do something for climbers' rights, or it's uh-huh. just going to get crushed. And fortunately, Jason Keith, who's the policy director for the Access Fund and has been for I don't know, fifteen years or something. I mean, he, mm-hmm. every person listening to this podcast, owes Jason Keith a beer. I mean, the guy has done so much for climbing, um, and he's one of those names you never hear because he's you know behind the scenes, but he does so much work uh, for the Access Fund. But anyway, he was here, and we both said, okay, look, we've got to go talk to the Park Service and say, look, this mm-hmm. this was a one-off event. Climbers are not coming to try and pull down Delicate Arch or something like that. That's not our goal here. So um, so we just started working with them. And with that, we needed to have a collective name of people who were telling me how they felt. And so it became Moab Area Climbers Alliance. Mm-hmm. And then later on, that got brought into being part of Friends of Indian Creek. And, and truly, I mean... Beyond the arches thing, you know, recently we're having parking issues and access issues with the Forest Service up at Mill Creek. We've got with- traffic issues on on Potash Road. 
uh, we've got a strange, very difficult to deal with if you want to do new routes, climbing policy in Canyonlands. We have a, a new RMP as of last year with a resource management plan, that is, uh, with the BLM in this area, which uh-huh. is very tolerant of climbers, but you needed to have s- somebody come out and say, hey, we, we are a large group. And, you know, because the bikers and the four-wheelers and those groups around here really get listened to. It's real easy for them to not even notice us. Uh-huh. Um, we don't uh, go to the hospital that often. We don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't climb a delicate arch and you know make have something like that happen. Mm-hmm. We just kind of are a sideline thing, right? So yeah, we we began working on the issue with that particular issue, and then just basically <laughs> trying to put climbing in a better light with the park service, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the other thing that's going on is arches. And Canyonlands are governed essentially out of the same office. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're two separate parks, mm-hmm. but as the government runs out of money, it you know starts running things together. And whatever Arches does rules-wise for climbers will happen in Canyonlands, which means Standing Rock, Moses, whatever you want to go do. Right. That new giant off-width 100-foot roof thing. The century crack. Thank you. Um, all that stuff falls into Canyonlands and, you know, you lose, you lose a huge amount of climbing resources if, right. if you don't so stay where, up on it. Where does that stand? Like those guys are still no anchors, right? We're working on it. Uh, no new anchors. Is the same guy still in charge? Cause wasn't it kind of like a bee in the bonnet it's a woman. of one dude? Uh, well, what do you mean? Canyonlands or, or? Canyonlands? No, new dude. Okay. Yeah. Cause wasn't Damn it thinking- originally, wasn't it like a, the bee in the bonnet of some one guy, like. 15 years ago. I think ago, his name is Dabney. Ben out of shape. And that's how Dabney Land got named, the, the climbing canyon that's sort of one step further away than where Standing Rock, you know, oh. Monument Basin, because it was the place that got opened up with no anchors. Right. And uh, people wrapping off two by fours. And then left flicking them off flicking or them something. Off the yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, which works yeah. fine for, you know, five or six people in the world, right. but most climbers really don't want to deal with that. And it's not at all dangerous. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's not putting the park service into a, a even deeper possible hole of litigation totally yeah so but anyway so there's a new person and there's a possibility that that there may be some sort of lightning of, of we that. move forward yeah it'll happen that'll that's cool yeah. so when you um you know you're obviously someone who's uh if not drawn towards it at least find yourself in the circumstances of either creating these organizations or working for them where did that come from I grew up in Jackson Hole. Uh, my parents were always working for organizations of things that they really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. They believed and, and I guess instilled in me at an early age. I mean, I never really thought about it like that, but they, mu- they must have given me this idea that, you know, if you really believe in something, it's you've got to go out and support it. Right. And, um, you know, I started climbing when I was mid-teens. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember not working on things that would support, I suppose in high school I didn't, but right after high school, my first, second year in college, I was replacing spinners and mm-hmm. Vitavu. My third year in that summer, I was meeting with the park service in Grand Teton about some of the cragging areas, the lower areas, not the bigger peak stuff. Um, some access issues we had going on up there. So yeah, I've been doing it a long time. It just kind of came natural as as I climb, if I if I loved climbing, I had to had to work on making sure the climbing stayed open and was you know, well. I mean, was good. I certainly see is, I mean, there's people that are drawn to that sort of thing. Just just like putting up new routes, like mm-hmm. not everybody puts up new routes. Like ninety nine percent of climbers don't ever, and not to fault them for not doing the work, but there's certain people that it's something they love to do, and obviously for you, it's something that. You're drawn yeah, to I don't, whether you like and it or I, not. And I, I feel like all climbers should probably be members of the Access Fund. They should right. support these organizations mm-hmm. and stuff. But I don't feel like you've got to go out and you, – not everybody has to be the one to go and talk to the park right. service. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, you should always try and be a good ambassador and not mm-hmm. you know, get in fights with tourists and, and do things that create a problem with climbing access. But you don't have to be an activist. Right. You, know, you just got to support these things. I don't feel like anybody else has to do what I do. Right. Yeah, and I'm I'm sort of somewhere in between. I mean, I, I'm part of Friends of Indian Creek. There's certain duties. You're lately. our web guy. Yeah, that I have shirked. <laughs> uh, you know, but I've also been replaced plenty of anchors down at the creek. And if I feel a connection to an area, n- not only a connection, but if I feel like there's a, a place to be filled, 
yeah, then I'll do it. I mean, I climb a ton in rifle, but there's certainly some other guys for whom advocacy with the rifle community, mm -hmm. the town is sort of their thing. And it's kind of, I feel kind of like, okay, well, Indian Creek's my thing and I'll do my part down there. And that doesn't mean I have to be on every front, every place that I climb. And, it's, well, and I feel like those guys have rifle more than covered and I don't really need to, to drop my little hat in the game over there as much as Indian Creek. I feel a connection to that place. So, And it's an interesting, we're in an interesting social group because we tend to be um, people who care, PBR, um, uh, we tend to be people who work on, on these kinds of, who take care of our place. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of sports, a lot of activities that you can go in that you, you see that it's kind of a mess where that activity takes place. As you said this year, while we were having our, uh, public lands day with the BLM, um, in September, we were commenting on, you know, what are we going to do? Could we gonna do a cleanup? And, and you chimed in. You could walk the entire Indian Creek cliff band with a garbage bag and you wouldn't get it half full. No. There's, I mean, we clean up after ourselves. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, it's an amazing thing down there. And, and I think generally in the United States, and I'll say the United States. Oh, it's, it's a mess over there. Yeah. At that other, that, that that other continent we We are from. relatively clean. And even in places where you do find trash, a lot of times I find that, well, that's probably from other users. Have you, you know? ever pulled your rope in, in, in France and had it land in poop? No, but I know plenty of people that yeah, have told I, I me have. those stories. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Indian Creek is amazing. And I've, I have friends from Europe that, that go down there and, and have openly commented about how clean it is. Yeah. yeah and there's some cigarette butts. There's a little bit of tape. There's going to be some band-aids and the occasional. What can we do? The Europeans come occasionally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and going back, you've worked for the access fund. Yeah. Officially and I sort of unofficially. I, I, well, I was a board member. You were a board member. Yeah. Which you do work as a board member, but I, mean, okay. I, I was not employed. Not employed at the Access Fund. From the very beginning? Armando Menical tells me I was the second phone call he made when he separated the Access Fund from the American Alpine Club in 88 or 89. Uh -huh. First first call, of course, was for money. That was, you got to call Yvonne. Right. So called called Yvonne Chouinard and then... You know, second call with Sam, I need somebody to help me out with this stuff. So uh, I've been involved since the very beginning, but I got far more involved in the mid-90s and mm -hmm. was a board member mm -hmm. for, I don't know, six years, right. two, two full terms. Right. Again, you know, the, the main thing to keep in mind with all these organizations, the, the, the Access Fund, what's real, one of the really cool things is they're over 80% of their budget is spent directly on climbing. Right. Only 20% is, or less than 20% is running the organization, right. which is a pretty cool thing. Friends of Indian Creek being a grassroots organization, it's zero is going to, you know, us as board members. It's hundred percent right. of the money we bring what? in. I'm not getting paid for this shit. Um, you, I buy you beer. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's out of your pocket. Uh, yeah, it's right. true. <laughs> yeah. It's part of, it's, that's part of the duty of being the president. The well, one of the pre pleasant things I actually ran into with, Indian Creek or the friends of Indian Creek is, is the fact that we actually do get a lot of money from climbers. And I swear to God, I thought, cause there's down in Indian Creek and like a lot of places around the country, there's, there's some donation, uh, these like tubes and they're like, they look like sort of a pylon and they've got a hole in the bottom of them. that have got a lock in it. And so you reach in this hole and unlock Pull it. Pull the black below. widows out of the way. Yeah, but also all the trash because you always like yeah, people, people use them as garbage cans. Yeah, those aren't garbage cans. Those are those are actually. <laughs> and so I've always seen the trash in there, and I thought it was some sort of like political statement against us. And and I just assumed like maybe like you clean those out once a year and you got like twenty two dollars, you know, in like yeah. change. But it turns out that you, you we get, get a lot support. of yeah. money out of those things, right? Uh. I mean, I mean, I've seen you, you know, pull out like pretty good wads. I would of cash. say last year we probably got fifteen hundred dollars in donations from those things. Fifteen hundred bucks, people. Yeah, like good job. Like, yeah, I just assume there. I'd drive up one day and there'd be some dirtbag climber with like a coat hanger trying to fish like a twenty <laughs> out of the fucking thing. You know, like I just assume there was nothing in those things. <laughs> well, yeah, we we could have gotten twenty five hundred out, but somebody was right, down there with a the fish, fishing yeah, around. Yeah. And, anyway, but and that's awesome. And then. 
you know, and then other people just simply uh, have been donating on PayPal. And we've got like Zach. We get, we get checks. Like there'll be yeah. a check written. Yeah. And then Zach Robinson last year did, you know, he has his, his birthday party slash, uh, I don't know. Um, um, it's raffly something or other. Yeah. Costumes and everybody and, wears costumes yeah. and goes climbing and stuff. People come to it and, and, uh, you're really coughing a lot from that approach today. I yeah, think. I know. I, I was a little sick last week. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, shout out to Zach. Like, you know, it's just like raising money. He's just a local climber, dude. You know, I don't want to get hung up on the Friends of Indian Creek thing. Although, I tell you what, I mean, Indian Creek is not only an international climbing area, but it's definitely like a place. Intergalactic. For Well, <laughs> but it's a place that, you know, any given weekend down there, like most of the climbers are from elsewhere. Like, there is a Moab climbing scene, but I've never considered them Indian Creek locals because the place was long developed before there was any sort of like climbing scene here. And, and so yeah. it's a very like, if not totally international, though, there, I mean, there is a lot of Europeans going there now too, but it's always been a place where Californians come to winter or come before yeah. Yosemite opens up or, you know, people from Montana come down bef- because it's like, you know, locked in ice till June up there or... People from the Midwest come out there, you know. No, so. it's a, it's an, inter, it's a, it's a, it's like a, place a national the whole country destination. Comes. Yeah. yeah, and the, and then we do occasionally, you know, have our European friends come over with, you know, one and a half sets of cams, right, and try to lay back everything. Yeah, but yeah, so I mean, it, it's 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 kind of a wider thing, but mostly we just buy toilets. It um, seems like yeah, your your comment of we're the people who help you poop. Yeah, I mean, and the reason for that, you know, the, the, there's a very good reason. It's a desert. And um, uh, I think it was Northern Arizona University, one of the schools in Northern Arizona, did a study, uh, two thousand three or something, and they came up with the clear conclusion that the big, the big effect on the desert down there was uh, bacteria from feces. People were going to the bathroom, so they said if you just come up with some way to mitigate that, you're really not having much of an effect. Right. So, okay, guess we'll. We'll start. We started with uh, with uh, rest stop bags, mm-hmm. and now we've moved on to uh, not just the rest stop bags, but also building toilets. Mm-hmm. And- I mean, the interesting thing is, and I don't want to talk about shit the whole the whole podcast, but you know, when you think about like, okay, I'm one person. I go down there for the weekend and I crap, and it's twice. no big deal. Twice, three times, and my girlfriend craps too, and our dog craps, and the two other friends that we came with crap, and then. All of a sudden, and, and the thing was is that for a little while in the interim, in, uh, the Friends of Indian Creek, we were paying for th- three portalettes in just one of the camping areas down there. Mm-hmm. And those portalettes, they'd get cleaned up on like Sunday or Monday, and then by like Thursday, you were already like taking a stick, pushing, pushing it down. down. Yeah, yeah. And when you you know saw it all in one place... You were just like, oh man, that is a ton of shit. Yeah. If you just dumped that out, how would you feel about it? Right. And and it used to go right in the ground within like a hundred yard radius of the campground. And the other problem is, is that all the camping is on these, on the creek, the actual Indian Creek. And the only place there's really good cover is down at the creek level. So people were walking down to the level of the creek into the Tamaris, into the riparian zone. Yes. And crapping, and it's like any of us who learn backpacking and boy scouting and anything else, you're not supposed to shit right next that's, to the stream. That's really only a problem, though, for the people of Southern California. What do you mean? Well, the the poop flows downstream. Oh and, yeah, that's you know, true. Then they got to drink it. But still, I mean, it was it, it was like one of those things that <clears throat> it seemed like it wasn't that big of a deal until you really started to kind of look at it. And We've then, had, we we have a number of weekends in the. Uh, spring where we hit 700 climber days you know 700 climbers on a given day of the weekend on a saturday and then on a sunday are you kidding me that's the estimate 700 people yeah climbing yeah in indian creek well think about it you got 50 cars parked just at super crack wow that's a lot of people probably two people per car is the average right and then you go to all the other areas and the whole whole place some people they're probably counting some hikers in there too it's a That's lot. A it's lot a lot of, of people. people. A lot of poop. All right. All right. Let's talk about something else. Okay. Moving on from Indian Creek and shit. You kind of put Thailand climbing on the map, and you're wearing your little Thailand pants right now. Oh actually. yeah, I wear them around the house. Okay. So 
Tell me about that. So you discover this place in Thailand. Where does it go from there? A uh, pretty fluke thing. A friend of mine was studying in China, and this is before China had opened up, and I don't know, this is 1989 or something. There was a one-page article on climbing on KOPP in Thailand, Wolfgang Gulich and, and Kurt Albert, both of whom are passed away now, but they had gone there and put up a couple routes, and my friend brought it up. He said, you know, I'm going to be over there. You should come over, and I was like, oh, that's a wacky thing to do, but you know, I mean, at that time, climbing has become this international thing. There are people from all over the world that are climbing now. But at that time, it was climbers were Northern Europeans. There was a couple of Russians that speed climbed, you know. Yeah, that's right. Like they two or three people in South Africa was what you thought climbed. And I mean, Ned February. That, yeah, Ed February Ed. and and, and, and uh, Roger Natras. And, you know, then it was, you know, Americans and Canadians and maybe... One guy down in Mexico. You know, that was, that was kind of what you thought the world of climbing was. What was that and guy's name? The guy in Mexico? Yeah. Oh, um, man, he was just at the trade show. Armando or... Anyway, he does the one pinky pull-up in that movie with... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. With yeah, yeah. Um, Johnny Woodward. Have you yeah. ever seen that movie? He does the one pinky pull-up? No, I've heard of it. Right. Anyway, heard go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah, he... Uh, you know, it, it, Somebody it, write like, in and tell me what that dude's name is. I swear to God, he's working for like uh, Yates. He's working for Yates. Okay, there you go. Anyway, go ahead. So, so you know, you just didn't think of climbing, you know, Thailand or whatever. Okay, right. it'll be an interesting thing to do. Right. Went over there. The way you get there now is not how you used to get there. And uh, we we uh, got on this boat and we gathered a whole bunch of water and bags of rice. And okay, let's see what's going to happen. Boat pulls up out onto Pranang Beach. You all got off on Pranang Beach rather than Riley and Tanzai at that time. And it was naked, beautiful. European woman laying around and uh, you know, beautiful 400 foot wall rising up off the beach. And mm -hmm. it's like a, a little Thai woman runs up and hands me a piece of pineapple. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why, why didn't I, why wasn't I doing this a long time ago? So I essentially moved to Thailand with that. Right. And uh, there, uh, a couple French guys had gotten there a couple weeks before. And um, my two German buddies were there at that time and they had just gotten there and were putting up roots and, we hit it off and, uh, you know, had a great climbing trip. And that was that, you know, I wound up moving there. So um, I was not the very first person to do right. it, but I was in that first little wave right. of people who showed up. And, and then I wound up writing an article about it. And, and then I guess advocacy as well for it. People started to think of me as the person to get in touch with because we started having problems with the bolts and things like that. And so people were contacting me all the time about, you know, what's safe, what's not safe and so maybe that's why my what's the aside on that like you guys were just putting in normal bolts and they were basically falling apart well the very first bolts that went in were you know just junk show bolts because right. who's ever going to come to thailand and go climbing right yeah you put them in and you they're strong enough for you to use them and right that's the end of right that. we'll yeah. do it and you know if we have to come back here someday you know that was sort of the original approach mm -hmm. but then within you know my second trip there everything i did was stainless steel Oh, it's stainless. It'll be fine. Right. No, it's gone. It's like weakened within probably a year. It's scary. Mm -hmm. um, it's a combination of chlorine gas and um, possibly some stuff. Chlorine gas? Yeah. Apparently you get chlorine gas when you mix limestone with salt water and uh, a lot of heat. All the limestone climbing areas on coast are going to have this right. problem. Thailand, it's accelerated because it's so much hotter right. and all chemical it's reactions more humid happen faster. Too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, Kalimnos is going to have it and uh, it is actually having it. Yeah, and, they're uh, taking care of it. Finale is going to have it and, you know, all the way up to, I don't know, those British crack. Of course, they don't use bolts there. No. But, um, so, so yeah, so we did that and then we, then we thought, okay, when the bolts kept breaking, we thought, okay, cause we were always breaking just barely under the surface. We thought it's gotta be, it's gotta be something in the rock. So let's use gluins. Gluins were brand new then. The, mm -hmm. the French had redone the whole country in gluins. It's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to redo, uh, we're going to redo this whole place in gluins. So we redid a, you know, the most popular routes, you know, hundreds of gluin bolts, um, and stainless steel gluins. And who's paying for this? You are. Uh, well, we got donations from people, but uh -huh. I was probably paying for half of it. Okay. And, and uh, working for free. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, girls kiss me and stuff occasionally for it. And, you know, for putting in glue and bolts. Yeah. You were getting action. 
Uh, kisses. That's, you know, <laughs> it's not quite. <laughs> action Action denotes something else, I think. But, All right. Excellent. Um, but, you know. And, you sure those weren't lady boys? No, these were, these were. Well, one of them looked a lot like Sinead O'Connor. Old Sinead, not, not current Sinead. So, young old Sinead. Yeah, young yeah. old Sinead. Yeah, we, we did everything in gluons and then found out, nope, it's, it's not the rock. It's something in the air. And the steel uh, and the steel is going to break down. And there was a kind of steel that, you know, when I, I, I looked into it and a guy told me, well, there is one kind of steel that's called any two thirty four or something like this. And, uh, it's $28 a linear foot for a rod of three eighths inch, you know, so you probably don't want to go that way because titanium's a lot less than that. And mm-hmm. Titanium will do the same thing. So we've now, when we started this back in early two thousands, we switched everything over to titanium. Shamik Pashuski was doing a hell of a lot of the work, and there's a uh, guys from a few guys that were continuously coming over from the East Coast. They've been there since the early years. Tom Cecil and uh, Josh Lyons. He lives he lives in uh, Boulder, and uh, Mark Miner. They all started doing their roots and redoing them in, t- in titanium. And Josh is now running the whole program. One of the other problems we had back then was we were leaving in the old stuff, and sometimes they weren't breaking. You know, sometimes they right. were fine. You just couldn't tell because the problem's under the surface, so you had to assume it was bad. Right. And <clears throat> we did have some serious injuries, uh, perhaps some fatalities. Um, we don't know because people will get taken away you right. know, and, and disappear in a coma, and you don't know if they lived or died because you just never hear about them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, a lot of very serious injuries. Uh, so you had to assume that the bolts were bad. My point I was going to make was we would leave in these – old things because we couldn't get them out. Sometimes right. they would just break right off with a hammer and, you know, but other times they just wouldn't come out. Mm-hmm. They'd be rusted into place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Josh has got some, I don't know, DeWalt tools or something that you know, he's got grinders that are now on batteries, which is really a scary thing to hang off a, you know, 9.4 millimeter with cord. A, with a freaking angle with a, grinder. With an angle grinder yeah. running at, you know, 30,000 RPM. Sparks flying Sparks everywhere. Sparks flying everywhere. Rock buzzing around you know you've got to have goggles on and everything right. but they're chopping off the old stuff now so because i've got some i've got one route there uh called strider it's got five generations of bolts on it oh jeez. yeah mess. and i've seen pictures where they're all just like lined up yeah. like each one a little and the, less rusty and, than and the if previous. you put up roots you know that there's an optimum place for a bolt so the second even the like second three spot, inches yeah. to the left or right is, totally. is not quite there. Right. And, you know, by the time you get to the fifth one, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad clip. It's impressive that you guys or these people are, are such, I don't know. So They're in love with the area. The zealots. You, know, of, it, you, you couldn't do that job right. just because, just because you, you wanted to help people out. I mean, you've got to really, really love the place. Yeah, because, I mean, bolting steep limestone, it's it's industrial. I mean, it's hard, hard work. It's working all your yeah. muscle groups. So, <laughs> so you... We're a big part of creating this area. And I mean, obviously you're thinking about the locals and what the scene's going to be and everything else. So what kind of work did you do towards that? One of the issues that came up early on was when we realized that the climbing was much more dangerous than we thought it was, that the bolts might fail and that trying to keep ahead of the potential failures was really hard to do because people were coming from all over the place and just putting in whatever and putting up great roots, but with bad equipment Mm -hmm. and what we came to the realization of was talking with a couple of the older local guys there was if somebody dies, the, the last thing the tourist authority of Thailand ever wants to read in the Frankfurt Gazette or whatever is German tourists killed on Thai beach. Right. Like, nothing is worse than that. Right. For them. So they're like, you know, if somebody dies, one of the guys tell me. If the guy dies with me, I'll take his body out, just drop it in the ocean, you know, and people won't know what happened. <laughs> you literally told me that. Like, this he drowned. drowned. Yeah, it wasn't it a climbing harness. accident. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they were really worried the whole climbing scene could get shut down. So part of it was try and save the area mm-hmm. by making the climbing safer. And then I, you know, I tried to work a little bit with those guys. You As a foreigner, it's you're viewed as pretty uh, – suspect mm-hmm. by the local authorities right. as you know, if you just walked in and say, Hey, I'm just want to help out. You know, right. They're not used to that. Right. So they're going, Hmm, something's up here. So you had to get the locals to do it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, we, we would, we would work towards getting the locals to go and talk to the authorities and say, look, we got to get climbing to be accepted here. And, right. Um, and now it's reached a point, you know, I mean, 
it, it, at some point it reached this place that's the same as sort of scuba diving. Right. You know, it's scuba just divers thing, get right. killed too. So sure. But for a long time it was touch and go. There's mm-hmm. only you know a few hundred climbers showing up, and how much of a uh, value are they economically? Right. It might be safer for the whole tourist scene if we just shut climbing down right. so that it never appears in the Frankfurt Gazette that climber died or. Meanwhile, isn't the whole area being developed in terms oh, yeah, of yeah. It's like always been the case. hotels and, sure. and all that sort of stuff? It's yeah. Everybody goes over there and then they come back two years later and they're like, "Oh my god, it's changed so much." Right. It's, it's, try it from 1989 till now. Right. I mean, it's it's changed dramatically. It's mm-hmm. always been going through changes, and and it it's actually a little cleaner now on Riley Beach. Right. Through the mid-90s, Riley was something akin to what Tanzai is now as far as uh, cleanliness, mm-hmm. you know, water quality issues and things like that. And we're not talking drinking water. We're, we're talking you go to take a shower and it, it smells like the pooper at Friends of Indian Creek put in right. last week. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's, you, you, you have a lot of stuff like that going on over there. And that's just sort of the nature of development there. Are they don't st- have rules. Are there still naked Europeans? Um, yeah, but they're older now. <laughs> they had to, they, it's but gotten they more, they haven't replaced no, them the with same girls. Ones? No, no, it's the same, same girls. girls. The girls left and they came back pushing baby carts and, you know, with, with, uh, instead of backpacks, now they have, they have, uh, Samsonite bags with wheels on them and stuff. All right. And, All right so what year did the, uh, it's just like, feels like ancient history, but it was only a couple of years ago. What year did the tsunami hit? Yeah. Well, that's cause we just, you know, we just had another tsunami right. last year. So that was uh, Boxing Day, uh, December 26, 2004. And I had just flown home and, uh, you know, got a phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning saying, there's just been a tsunami. I'm like, we're not even in an earthquake zone. They're like, no, it was a giant earthquake. Right. You know, it was the second largest, it turns out to be the second largest earthquake we think of the whole 20th century. And um, so, you know, a day later, I was on an airplane flying back to uh, try and help out. Uh-huh. So. And- my understanding was that those that those beaches didn't necessarily get hit as hard as as some places in the South Pacific. Well, the Indian Ocean. I mean, Indian Ocean, right? Yeah, the PP got hit really hard. Okay. Essentially, what happened was a tsunami moves in two different, you know, it moves out in a uh, circular pattern right. away from the epicenter of mm-hmm. the earthquake, and let's just say it, it's going in two different directions mm-hmm. from this particular fault line. It went. West, crest first, trough second. It's a it's a giant wave. Mm-hmm. So the crest is going along out in front. It came east towards Thailand, uh, trough first, crest second. So what happened was in deep water areas like Koh Phi Phi, the water around the island dropped down. Receded first. It receded, and then it just popped over the top of the island. Okay. Okay. Riley Bay in front of Tanzai and Riley Beach um, – the water receded and the bay is shallow. Mm-hmm. So uh, it had to fill in the entire bay when the, when the crest came in, mm-hmm. it, it had to fill in what it had just drained out. Right. So deep water areas were hit really, you know, places right around deep water areas mm-hmm. were hit really hard. Our area, there was a fair number of people killed right on the right. beach, but um, oh, it didn't come in and, and, you know, wipe out, all of the buildings and all uh-huh, that stuff. Uh-huh. The wave was probably about eight or 10 feet high when it came ashore. And so you started some sort of relief fund. Um, I remember actually we, I contributed to it. Thank somehow. you. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, well, um, my girlfriend at the time and a number of other Canadian climbers that had just been over there uh-huh. started it while I was away and I was doing various things over there. And, you know, I talked to her on the phone. It was, that was the interesting thing was here we were in this place that, what, the only group that was really still there was a lot of climbers were still there because the climbers looked at it a bit like, you know, an avalanche just right. swept the face. Okay. That means skiing safe now. Right. You know, this isn't going to happen twice. Right. So the climbers stayed and helped were doing cleanup work right. and, you know, doing, doing the various things that were going on. And, uh, here we were, all the other tourists had left. Right. They, with their tails between their legs, like, oh my God, this is, this is terrifying. They'd sure. all gone home. And so all the infrastructure was still for our area was mm-hmm. still pretty much in place. Right. Water making equipment's all on the mainland, ice making equipment, all that stuff. So there's almost nobody there 
and yet everything's working fine. So we had like cell phone coverage and all mm-hmm. that stuff was working fine. So I, I'm talking to my girlfriend at the time and um, she's saying, you know, you've got to come back because you need to put a face to what's going on with this tsunami because we've just created this nonprofit to raise a bunch of money and, mm-hmm. you know, we need somebody, you, you got to come back. Right. And so I flew back to the U.S. and then to Canada and then back to, and down to the U.S. And I was living in, in Banff at the time. And uh, we had some fundraising stuff and, you know, got together a bunch of money and then went back over there. And uh, there was a lot of graph going on. No question about it. It just happens. So you had to you had to be a little savvy about Thailand. Right. And so we figured out where places were that we could help out the most. Right. With. And what we were trying to do was just pick individuals that let's try and get them back on their feet. We can't like give ten dollars to everybody in the country that's been affected and hope mm-hmm, that that helps. Mm-hmm. So let's pick fifteen people and get them back on their feet and pick the right people so that they then are helping other people right. on their feet. Right. So I think we did a pretty good job with it. So uh huh. Got some got a couple fishing boats built and some long tails and you know, various things to get business going. But now Thailand's like, you know, it's ancient history. They don't even Right. I don't even really make you know, acknowledge it. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, that's the kind of like the sort of human saga is it just, it's like life goes on. Yeah. I was, that was, that was a tsunami ago. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you've been in this advocacy thing for 20 some years, sounds like, uh, since the early nineties, right? Yeah. Maybe even late eighties, late eighties, you know, so what kind of issues have things changed? I mean, are we dealing with different issues now that then we were then, you know, what what do you see that sort of changed in ter- terms of the world of climbing? Well, climbing has grown so much that we're no longer this fringe element that uh, that they can kind of ignore, or if not ignore, then just crush because <laughs> who's who's going to really scream right. loud? I mean, it's just not very many people, so they have to deal with us, and uh, it's big enough even that they want to deal with us because maybe they are climbers. You know, there's right. climbers now that are in the park service, and there's climbers in the BLM, and yeah, you know, so that guy that's you know got his pistol drawn in Yosemite and has you on your knees with handcuffed. That guy could be a climber. You never know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the nice things is the Access Fund did a really good job with the fixed anchor ban. And um, there still are from time to time, let's say, pushes uh, by various groups to get a ban on fixed anchors on public land, which right. just, I mean, it would just be the end of climbing if you just said, okay, there'll be no more fixed anchors. But there have been riders on bills that have gone into you know, Congress that, that said, we're going to remove all fixed anchors from uh-huh. public land, right. forest service or whatever. And it's like, right. okay, that just ended the sport. Well, you know, and in, that- in, in, it's interesting in, in Wadi Rum in Jordan, mm-hmm. where we climbed uh, a few years ago, they created this national park, one of the first sort of national parks in, in Jordan. And they consulted with the U S park service. Yeah, we had that happen in Thailand too. And the park service says, "You know what you got to do because we can't." Yeah, is get rid ban of these guys. Fixed yeah. anchors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same thing happened. They did the exact same thing in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And now all the guides and all the climbing, the people who who work with the climbers and and kind of depend on the climbing tourism are bummed because they know that you know bolts and and fixed anchors bring climbers. Yeah, it's one of those aspects of. Uh of so-called American imperialism that, you know, didn't, didn't come with a gun. Yeah. Came with a phone call. <laughs> so, um, no, we had the exact same Curse thing you. happen. We, we had also, we had cavers write letters to the Thai tourist authority. About um, what? Uh, you know, the rock in Southeast Asia is riddled with, uh, not riddled. What would it be? Something's riddled as holes. So what's something that protrudes I don't in know. massive numbers? Fuzzed. It's fuzzed with uh, with stalactites, yeah. stalagmites rising up, and, and so they were bummed. You guys were climbing. Well, they on said them? these things are really rare. Of course, the Thai guys are like, they're on all the rock we have. <laughs> you know, what, what's wrong with the rock in in the United States? But these guys were saying, no, 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 you shouldn't let these guys ever touch these things. I thought whatnot. you were going to say that they wanted to ban anchors. I was like, those no, assholes put they wanted bolts they wanted in us everywhere. to not climb. Period, because we might touch a stalactite. Oh, please. So um, they wrote letters. Uh, one particular guy in Oregon wrote a whole bunch of letters. I got I him. got copies of them. 
But hey, the Thai guys were giving me your letters. Dude. Right. So so <clears throat> back to that. So the Access Fund's been really good at sort of heading off these these anchor bands. Yeah, but you still, I'd say now what what's more of an issue is it's more local. Mm-hmm. So you might have an area where um, there's a particular land manager because it, that's one thing that most people don't realize is that the personalities of the people involved, both the climbers that are doing it and the, uh, they're doing the sport and the people who are the land managers mm-hmm. are just enormously important. It's not as if there's this blanket law that covers right. everything. Right. And, you know, if you get along really well with your, you know, BLM guy or forest service guy or whatever, mm-hmm. and they think what you're doing is okay, it's going to be okay. They'll work with you to right. make sure that it's okay. Mm-hmm. If they come in ahead of time as, you know, what happened with, with like Quaco tanks, for instance, but Ranger Bob, you know, he had, he had a problem with people just being there. He just wanted everybody out. So, you know, it set a precedent early on of, look, we're going to, we're going to really put limitations on what these climber groups can do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so we've got that going on now where you'll rather than have the entire, um, bureaucracy of a land management group opposed to you, you might have a particular land manager at a particular area. For instance, this is going on right now in Idaho. You know, there's one group that's like, we really don't want climbing in this area for various reasons. And they're, they're opposing everything. They're trying to get climbing stopped and things that have been climbing areas for 25 years are being threatened to be closed down. And, mm-hmm. and it's all because essentially one or two people don't like it. Right. And that's more the way it's come. It's no longer this giant sort of government as a whole coming at you to stop. It. Well, I mean, that's like one of those unintended consequences of, of popularity. It's like that, generally is seen as a drag it's like oh there's so many climbers and everything else but in some ways and not always because i know like red rock or um the red river gorge mm-hmm. is having all these growing pains right now with with the amount of climbers that are climbing down there and that's that's you know midwest or eastern and so they've got they've got a whole different issues right there because private land it's private land yeah. issues there but you know at least having a certain amount of climbers gives us a voice i mean you know, literally REI has lobbyists. Yeah. Of course, lobbyists are bad right up until they're lobbying, lobbying, lobbying for, for the you. thing yeah. that you like. Yeah. But, you know, they have people who are, are essentially watching out for outdoor recreation people because yeah. that sells gear and they want to sell gear. And so they've got guys in there making sure that. And the Access Fund's access. doing that too. The I mean, Access Fund is definitely has, has lobbyists. Jason Keith, as an example, goes and talks to people about. Uh, we'd like a bill that doesn't read this way because right. it's, it's, you know, and he may not be talking to the actual Senator, but he's talking to his aide or something mm-hmm. like that and mm-hmm. saying, look, this is, this is bad for us. Mm-hmm. And here's how much money is made in Colorado per year by various businesses catering to climbers. And, you know, they, they're, they're listening now. And back then it was, you know, there was no organization. There right. was nothing, you know, it was just coming around and our numbers were so much smaller that, Right. We couldn't, even if we had an organization, we couldn't say, okay, here's how big of an impact we are. Now we really are an impact. We're, we're there. And, and one of the issues that came up, and we were talking about this earlier today, was climbers maybe air their dirty laundry a bit much on the web. We've reached a point with the web that the land managers are actually paid to read the blogs, read the, the discussion groups, and see what it is we're up to. Right. Um, and I'm sure it's going on with skiing. It goes on with, you know, kayaking probably, you know, mountain biking, whatever. whatever. And, but it's going on with the climbing. Cause I've met the land managers that are assigned to do this. And they say, you know, it'd be really smart if you guys just didn't say everything on the web, because <laughs> a lot of times we don't understand what you're talking about. And it's obviously a really nasty point of discussion. Right. And so we feel like we've got to get involved and you know, they're not going to get involved in, and make things more open. Right. They're going to get involved and put a restriction of some sort. That's government restricts. It doesn't. It makes more laws. It doesn't right. make less laws. So, so you know, we're probably a little bit shooting ourselves in the foot from time to time on Mountain Project and Super Topo with yelling at each other about ethical things and about that bolts was, and chipping and, and right. pitons and and that was what happened right. in in the eighties. Was you know essentially 
the anti-rat bolt group in Yosemite went to the park service and said, did you know these guys are rat bolting on these routes? And the park service went, you're bolting. What's a bolt? Yeah. <laughs> and just like, oops. Oh, we didn't, we didn't mention that we thought it was okay to bolt, but you have to be doing it from a stance, you know? Right. Um, it's so esoteric that you have to start explaining like how the bolts go. Here's, here's All a, they saw were like, wait, you're putting what into the rock with yeah. what? Here, here's an example that, that when, when we first started working on the, one of the things we wanted to do with arches when we were really trying to do the healing and say, okay, look, we're going to come in. There's going to be a number of us that come in and we're going to, um, if you'll give us permission to use the drill, we'll come in and change out all those tat because you know, the, the webbing here gets so worn out by the ultraviolet and it's on a brown or red wall and mm -hmm. it just turns bright white and all the tourists can see it. So well, we'll plus it, then the next person adds another piece. And, and then they, the they next never take it away. Another, they yeah, just they add. Because they forgot their knife. So we're yeah. going to come in and put it all in there with chain, with really you know smaller bolts and they're going to be on chains that are painted, painted brown right. and it's all going to be a little bit more kosher for, for visual. And... They said, that sounds great. Um, let us look into it, but that sounds really good because we don't like the way that looks and we do get complaints from time to time about the way it looks. So a few days go by, they get back to me and say, you know, we think this is a really good idea except for the bolt ladders. The bolt ladders, okay, because there's a lot of the towers require bolt ladders. Like, we can't sign off on ladders being bolted to the wall. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, let me explain. You know, you, that's not what a bolt ladder is. And so, so it's just an example. Right. They didn't know. And, and this was what, like two years ago or three uh, years ago? 2006. Yeah. So it's not like this is like the yeah. 1970s. No, no. And, and, and it's not a stupid thing to think. Like <laughs> no, they're just, bolt ladder. it's not yeah. being explained in the discussion right. groups. It's being just, well, you put this bolt ladder in, da, 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 da. Right. You know, it's never being explained what that actually means. Right. So. When we start arguing about things online, sometimes these guys pick it up and they're not quite getting the full right. picture, but yet they feel they have to make a stand on it. So mm -hmm. that's that we got a little of that going on right now, too. All right. So everybody just shut your damn traps yeah, on the Internet forums. And I'm sure that's going to help. Anything else you'd like to uh, sort of give out as a message to the to the masses who are teaming up their favorite crag? Uh, yeah, I would. I, I would say support the access fund. Um, it's doing a really good job and, uh, the people that are, are working for the access fund are not getting rich doing this. They're doing it because they're passionate about it. And, uh, you can be absolutely sure that the access fund has done a great job protecting your climbing, no matter what medium you're climbing on. Uh, they, they've helped and, uh, you know, where, whether it's forest service or BLM or even private land, they're, you know, they, they, they've gone in like private land issues, for instance, they've done a great job with pointing out whether or not, you know, people are afraid to, to let you go there to, because of litigation Just pointing out what the actual laws are, mm -hmm. how you're safe, mm -hmm. da, 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 da. So, uh, if you're going to do anything advocacy wise and you don't really want to get deep, deep into it, just be supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, join. Be a member. Yeah. And I mean, $35 a year to. And plus, you get a t shirt sometimes. You get a t shirt. Then you, you maybe get a, a sticker. You st yeah. Climbers you, love stickers. Occasionally, you get like a beer opener. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you pay so, a little more. It's a worthy thing. Uh, they're really doing a good job for us. Other than that, uh, you know, dogs make better pets than cats. That's about all I can say. All right. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks for having me over to your place. And hopefully, we'll see. I love the podcast, by the way. It's a lot of fun listening to Thanks, you. Thanks, dude. Hopefully we'll send that prod soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. We got to get back up there. I got to get my tips nice and thick. Yeah. All right. Thanks a bunch. All right. You heard him. I want money. The Access Fund wants money. Everybody wants money. That's what this is all about is money. No, not really. Thanks again for listening to episode nine of The Normal Cast couple little plugs. First of all, Rock and Ice just put out their yearly issue of Ascent Magazine, and yours truly, your host, your humble host, has an article in there about my extraordinary man crush on Leighton Core. So check that out if you have a minute. Also, some very close friends of mine are putting on the Five Point Film Festival here in Carbondale, Colorado. That's April 26th, the Thursday through April 29th. 
For more information, check out the website. It's fivepointfilm.org. That's the number, fivepointfilm.org. Check it out. If you're in Colorado, come and watch some cool films and hang out with a bunch of climbers and outdoors people, skiers, boaters, all those folks. Fit, hot, sexy. In fact, my arch nemesis, Fitz Cahall of the Dirtbag Diaries, will be there with a film and a live podcast. Maybe I'll challenge him to a podcast off where we just mumble into mics until one of us drops dead. Also, speaking of sexy, I'll be playing music in town on Saturday night, the 28th. So after the film festival, come check it out just on the corner. Carnahan's. Ask around. You'll figure it out. Anyhow, if you can't do that, at least go climbing that weekend. It's springtime in the Rockies, baby. Okay. Have a good one. We'll see you next time. Can I raise a practical question at this point? Yeah. Are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow? No, we're not going to fucking do Stonehenge.